Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. I'm wondering if there's uh, anybody here tonight who would readily admit in front of God and all of these witnesses that you are directionally challenged. Wonderful. Thank you. Because I am too. Hello. My name is Bill. And I am directionally challenged. I feel like we ought to just get us a little circle up here. That's wonderful. Now, that's not new news for those who have been around here. I've been quite honest and quite open and very vulnerable um, when it comes to my lack of navigational skills. I mean, I get lost easy. My wife can testify to this. I can get lost in a mall parking lot. Seriously. That's if I can find my way out of the mall to my car. It never fails. I never leave the mall the same way I came. I don't know why. It just, I think, yeah, that's it right there. And I get out and I have to walk all the way around the mall to get to my car. Then I get in my car. And only God knows how long it's going to take me to get on the road I need to be on. Now, I envy you guys that don't have that issue. Because it's a bummer. It's embarrassing, especially when you got the fam with you. And you're like, oh, great, here we go again. Dad's driving. Because it is a challenge. So you can imagine <clears throat> the joy that filled my heart when I bought my first Garmin GPS. Boom. Problem solved, right? Wrong. <laughs> as quickly as my heart rose with excitement at having a GPS, it sank with disappointment the first time I followed that lady's voice, and I'm talking to a T, perfectly, and ended up in the hood. It's a bummer. I did some research this week on some failed GPS stories. And if those stories are true, there have been some epic, some epic GPS fails. I'm talking about people who have ended up driving down railroad tracks, and they've driven into lakes, and they've driven into sand traps on golf courses. <laughs> it's nuts. So here's my point tonight. I'm not sure that there is any GPS that is 100% accurate 100% of the time. I mean, even in my own experience, I just shared with this, this with you, my, B, my GPS has gotten me lost. 
as if I need help. Like I paid good money for that smart aleck in a box. And she leads me into the hood. And this 51st message from the book of Acts, we're going to talk about what some have referred to as our built-in GPS, God's protective system that has been given to us to guide us along our journey through life. Now, like the other kind of GPS, this one sometimes leads us astray too. And the results can be awfully destructive. An error in this guidance system could lead to any number of disastrous fails. This GPS is best known as our conscience. One little boy defined conscience as something that makes you tell your mother before your little sister does. Others have defined it as a red warning light that goes off in your soul or a moral beeper that goes off when you do wrong. The dictionary definition is an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. I meant to put that up there and I didn't, so let me say that again. It is an inner feeling or an inner voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or the wrongness of one's behavior. I think Romans 2 gives a a pretty good definition of what the conscience is. Paul wrote this, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, and here it is, their conscience also bearing witness, that inner witness or that inner voice, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. So our conscience is that inward witness of God which either accuses or excuses our actions. You remember the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? The men brought her to the Lord claiming that they had caught her in the very act and they throw her down to the ground and They explain to Jesus how she deserves to be stoned. 
And at that point, the Bible says that Jesus stooped down and he wrote something in the sand. And then he looked those men in the eye and he said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. You remember that? And then the Bible says he stooped down and he wrote something else in the sand. And then we read this in verse 9 of John chapter 8. And they which heard it, look at this, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the least, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. It's our conscience that evaluates our actions and our intentions. It is the internal judge that examines all that we say and do. In a negative sense, the Bible speaks of several different kinds of consciences. It speaks of a defiled conscience. It speaks of an evil conscience. And it makes reference, and we'll see this later tonight, it makes reference to a seared conscience. On the other hand, in a positive light, the conscience is described as being good and pure and void of offense, as we'll see here in a moment. Acts chapter 24 plays out in a courtroom if you will. Paul is the accused. The Jews were the plaintiffs. The jury was comprised of the high priest and elders. And the Roman governor, whose name was Felix, was the judge. There was no defense attorney because Paul chose to represent himself. And then there's another guy mentioned in the first Uh, five verses or so. His name is Tertullus, and he's a dirtbag lawyer. We might call him a creepy porn lawyer. You're keeping up with the news. His name was Tertullus, and after some flowery, flattering words aimed at kissing up to Felix, he makes three accusations against the apostle Paul. The first one is a personal one, and we read of it in verse 5, and we have found this man a pestilent fellow. In other words, he says, Your Honor, this guy is a pest. That's what he says. He's a pest. And then the second charge was a political one. Still in verse 5, he's not only a pest, but he is a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The implication of these words was that Paul was a bigoted leader of a messianic sect that posed a threat to Israel and thus to Rome. And then he makes one more charge, and it's a a doctrinal one. 
as he accuses Paul of profaning the temple in verse 6. If you remember, in the last chapter, that was one of those charges leveled against Paul. Somebody saw him walking and associating with a non-Jew, and they just assumed that Paul had taken him into the inner part of the temple and that he had profaned the temple. But we know for a fact that those charges were completely bogus. Didn't happen. So let's pick up reading in verse 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. Here's Paul's first defense. Your Honor, listen, I haven't been here long enough to cause the kind of turmoil that these people are accusing me of creating. And I just haven't been here long enough. I've only been here 12 days. And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Your Honor, listen. Sir, I've not been here long enough to create the issues that they're accusing me of creating, and they have absolutely no proof. They have absolutely no credible witnesses to witness against me. But, he said in verse 14, this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, talking about the way of Christ, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Your Honor, here's why I'm in Jerusalem in the first place. Because I had a, a huge benevolent offering that I had received from many other churches. And I came to Jerusalem to deliver that offering. Whereupon certain Jews, verse 18, from Asia, found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee, and object if they had ought against me. You know why those men weren't there? Because they didn't have anything against Paul. They couldn't, they would have lied in a court of law. Paul said they should have been here if they had something against me. Or else let these same here say, 
if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead. The second time Paul has mentioned the resurrection. I am called in question by you this day. Paul said, the only reason I'm here, sir, is because I am preaching the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, in other words, he, he knew about, the, uh, uh, about Christianity. He knew about Christians. He knew what, what Paul had been preaching and what Paul had been teaching. And of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. In other words, it's like being under house arrest. People could come in, and they could visit with Paul, and they could talk to Paul, and they could pray with Paul, and Paul had some liberty to move around here and there. And after certain days, <clears throat> look at verse 24, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned, that is, as Paul stood and spoke with Felix about righteousness and about temperance and about judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money, a bribe, should have been given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Let's go back to verse 16. And herein, Paul said, do I exercise myself to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men? Now, if you remember, it was this same claim that Paul made in chapter 23 that got him hit in the mouth. Remember that? Paul said, I've got a good conscience. And they hit him in the mouth. But here he is again, claiming to have lived always with a good and clear conscience. Which brings us to the first thought with regard to our conscience. And it's this, the conscience is useful to prevent sin. Our conscience prevents us from sinning against God and against men. My 2017 Tahoe is equipped with a safety alert seat. 
that sends pulses through the driver's seat on the left side if it senses there's danger on the left, or on the right side if it senses danger on the right. And if you're wondering, well, Pastor, what does that feel like? Just imagine sitting on six smartphones, all set to vibrate, and they ring at the same time. I mean, listen, the first time that thing went off, like, dude, say something. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know how it worked. I just happened to go over here. It's crazy. It also has a low-speed forward automatic braking system, which if it senses that I'm coming up on the back of somebody too fast, it vibrates, but it also applies the brakes. Our conscience functions in the same way, and it warns us when it comes to sinning against God or against men. Our conscience goes off, and it tells us to slow our roll, if you will. You need to slow down. You need to apply the brakes before something happens that you're going to regret. That's what our conscience does. You with me? Wonderful. Let's pray. We'll go home then. Too bad for you. Spent too much time on this. An example of our conscience preventing us from sinning against God might be something like this. When someone praises us for a work well done or a song well sung or an offertory well played or a sermon well preached and we begin to think thoughts that elevate us and glorify us instead of God. At that point, the Holy Spirit sends an alarm and reminds us that it's God who deserves the glory, not us. An example of our conscience preventing us from sinning against man might be something as simple as paying for something at the store and receiving too much change. And then, as you prepare to walk out the store knowing that you were given too much money, or maybe you do walk out the store, the conscience goes, huh? And it tells you, listen, That's not yours to keep. That was an honest mistake, and you need to go back in there and give them that money. Or maybe you're in a crowded parking lot, and you're backing up, you're not paying attention, and you back into the front end of somebody's car, and you leave a dent. At that moment, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do would be to grab a piece of paper and write your name and your address and your phone number and explain what happened. But as you look around, make sure nobody's watching, 
start driving down the parking lot, your conscience goes, eh. You I've not backed into anybody, but you know what I'm talking about. Your conscience warns us about those things. Now, let me, let me make this point real quick. There is a difference between the conscience of someone who is lost and that of someone who is saved. That's why Paul wrote in Hebrews 9, 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So since Paul wrote that, let's just take Paul for example. Prior to being saved, do you think Paul had any kind of issue whatsoever doing what he did in persecuting Christians? Do you think Paul had any issue coming into homes and breaking up families and taking mom to prison or dad to prison? Or do you think he had any kind of ill feeling whatsoever, any kind of, of guilt whatsoever as he stood there holding the, the, the cloaks, the outward garments of those who stoned Stephen that day? Do you think he had any kind of feeling whatsoever? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, at one point in, in Paul's letter, he writes this. In essence, he said, I thought I was doing God a favor by getting rid of all of those pesky Christians. But when he got saved, God purged or cleansed his conscience. And we read this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Who was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Think of the conscience as a sundial. A sundial, as you can see, was, a, was a, a round surface, and I don't know if you can see them or not, but, but there are markings on there all the way around the circumference of, of that, that, that flat surface indicating the time of day. And it had this metal piece, and it was at a 45-degree angle. And here's how it would work. The sun would strike the metal piece and it would cast a shadow on the surface displaying the right hour of the day according to the sun. And when the sun was out and the sun was shining, it worked like a charm. And it worked for thousands of years. It was ingenious. Now, let's say that we came to a sundial with a flashlight when it was dark and we shined that flashlight on the sundial, would it give a reading? Would it, would it cast a shadow? Yes, it would. But it would not necessarily indicate the right time, stay with me, because it didn't have the right light shining on it. I mean, just think about it. Using a, a flashlight, we could make the sundial say whatever time we wanted it to say 
just by moving the light around. We could come over here and shine it, it would say it's one time, and we could come over here and shine it, and it would say that it was another time. The sundial, listen, the sundial is only correct when it is exposed to the right light. Let's go back to Paul. Why could he persecute Christians with a clear conscience before he was saved, but afterwards feel guilty for it? Because before he got saved, he had the wrong light shining on his conscience. But after his conscience was purged by the blood of Christ in salvation, the light of God's word began shining on his conscience, giving light and understanding as Psalm 119 and verse 130 says. Take the terrorist who attacked us on 9-11 and continue to this day, it seems like almost every day, blowing themselves up, do you think they feel any guilt whatsoever? Absolutely not. And you know why? For the same reason Paul felt no guilt before he was saved. They have the wrong light shining on their conscience. They have the light of the Koran shining on them, which tells them that they are supposed to do what they're doing. And that their God, small g, Allah, will reward them and bless them for it. Church, listen, that's why, stay with me, we're, we're going somewhere, that's why it's not always wise to let your conscience be your guide. Oh, you, 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 just, you just let your conscience be your guide. No, 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 no. The conscience is only a good guide when it's being shined upon by the right light. Our conscience is only true to course when it's influenced by the Word of God. Otherwise, it will lead you astray every single time. Which leads us to the second thought. The conscience must be influenced by the Word of God. Is this making sense? I want you to consider this quote by Oswald Chambers. It's in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, and you're looking for a, maybe something to read at the beginning of the, uh, of the new year or sometime in the new year, I'd encourage you to get that book. It's got some great devotional thoughts in it, and it's challenging. But here's what he wrote. Conscience is that ability within me that attaches itself to the highest standard I know and then continually reminds me of what that standard demands I do. It is the eye of the soul which looks out either toward God or toward what we regard as the highest standard. This explains why conscience 
is different in different people. If I am in the habit of continually holding God's standard in front of me, my conscience will always direct me to God's perfect law and indicate what I should do. The question is, will I obey? I have to make an effort to keep my conscience so sensitive that I can live without offense toward anyone. I should be living in such perfect harmony with God's Son that the spirit of my mind is being renewed through every circumstance of life and that I may be able to quickly prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me go back to that first sentence again. Conscience is the ability within me, listen to this, that attaches itself to the highest standard I know. The Bible is the changeless standard to which we must hold our conscience. Listen, the Bible is not like that flashlight. You come over here and shine the flashlight and you get one reading. You come over here and shine your flashlight and you get another reading. Depending on what time you want it to be, then you stand where you want it to the light to shine. It'll be the time you say it is. Listen, that's not how the Word of God operates. This book is unchangeless. It's changeless. This book is forever the same. And this book is constant. And the light of this book shines on, the, uh, uh, on your life just like it shines on my life. And this book is not going to shine in your life one way and in my life one way. This book will shine the same way in every single life that is represented here tonight. This is the highest standard. And it's when our conscience is not influenced by this standard that we begin to make some disastrous choices. Someone said that conscience is a trustworthy compass when God's word is north. Our minds are like cups with holes in the bottom. And the word of God is like water that is poured into that cup. In order to keep that cup full, we have to constantly be pouring water into it. Likewise, we must keep filling our minds with the Word of God every single day so that God's commandments are in our hearts and constantly on our minds and our conscience is always in tune with the Word of God. It's when we fail to fill our minds with God's Word and we allow other sources to fill us that our conscience becomes defiled 
and is no longer a reliable guide. Well, Pastor, what are some of those other influences that could, that could influence our minds and thus cause our conscience to give us a faulty reading? Now, we could, we could list a lot of them, but let me just say some very obvious ones. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is the people that we allow to speak into our life. The people that we surround ourselves with. Listen, they can adversely affect our minds. And we let them fill us with gossip and with complaining and with murmuring and with cursing and with filthy stories and with things that are contrary to the Word of God. Listen, that's going to adversely affect our conscience. And so the next time we participate in that, our conscience isn't going to give us a warning. It's not going to go off because it has been influenced by that standard. Other things like worldly media can adversely affect the trueness, if you will, of our conscience. Listen, music is not neutral. It's not. It affects us. It's designed to affect us. That's why sometimes you'll hear something and for the rest of the day, you're going humming and you're going, ah! You know what I'm saying? Worldly music with worldly lyrics and worldly ideas and carnal ideas and the, excuse me, the wrong kind of movies or the wrong kind of social media exposure. Don't listen, don't, don't, don't think that the devil does not use those mediums to affect us. Because he does. Because he knows this: whoever or whatever controls the mind controls the battle. And it's going to adversely affect our conscience. These things shine light on our conscience from the wrong direction. And they leave us, lead us to believe that something is okay when it's not. And I'll not belabor this point tonight. I think you get what I'm saying. But I will share this verse with you by way of one last reminder. It's a very, very familiar verse to most of you. It's from Psalm 119. Thy word David said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so if we will attach our conscience to the high standard of God's word, then when it goes off, when we're following something too quickly and we're pursuing something we shouldn't be pursuing or we're, we're about to veer to the right or veer to the left in our Christian life, our conscience will go off.
But what happens when it goes off and we ignore it? And whatever. Whatever. You know what I'm saying? Our, our conscience is sending out the warning and we're just blowing it off. The conscience can become useless when it's ignored. Felix is a great illustration of this. Go back down to the last part of the chapter. And after certain days, verse 24, and after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul. And he heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, and you have to understand the history of Felix, he was a, he was a very immoral man. He, the wife, his, Drusilla, his wife, was the wife of someone else who he enticed to come and, and, and be his wife. He was a filthy man. He was an immoral man. And he calls Paul, and Paul begins to talk to him about righteousness, about right living, and, and about temperance, self-control. Felix didn't know anything about self-control. Whatever he wanted, he got. And if he couldn't get it, he would take it. And it didn't matter who he hurt. And you've got to know all during this, this conversation with with Paul, his, his conscience is going off. He's being convicted. And he talked to him about right living and about self-control and about judgment to come. Felix, listen to me, sir. There is a judgment coming. And here's Felix's conscience. He trembled. He trembled. And would to God, I wish we could read that he said to Paul, tell me more. But he didn't. He ignored conviction of his conscience. And he said, go away. When I have a more convenient time, when it's more convenient for me, Paul, I promise I'll have you come back. Felix was under such conviction that he was physically, visibly shaking. But instead of re repenting of his sin and being saved, he ignored it. Oh, church, listen to me tonight. When God's word comes to us, with convicting power. We must never put off our response. Because listen, listen. Because though we may hear the same truth again, it may never bring conviction again. 
You get that? We may hear the same thing, but it may never bring conviction ever again in our life. I mean, you go ahead and, and, and read on what we've already read. This wasn't the last time that Felix and Paul talked. Paul and Felix talked a number of times after this. The, 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 the word that, that is used there, that Luke used, is the word oftener. I don't think that's a word nowadays, but it evidently was then. Oftener. But listen, we never read of Felix trembling again. It's just not in there. Felix opted for a more convenient time. A time which, by all indications, never came. Never. Again, when God's word comes to us with convicting power, we must never put off our response. I told you at the, in the introduction that one of the negative connotations of the conscience is that it can be seared. Timothy says it can be seared with a hot iron. In other words, it's possible to have a conscience so cauterized that there is no longer any feeling, any guilt, any remorse. I would liken it, I guess, to the formation of a callus. In the initial stages, as the, the blister begins to rise, it can be pretty, pretty painful. It can be pretty tender. But the more you swing that hammer or the more you use that shovel or whatever it is that you're doing, the less painful it becomes until eventually there's no pain at all. Yes? That's why some of you sitting here tonight can say, Pastor, my conscience is really in trouble because it doesn't bother me anymore. I'm doing things today that if I had done a year ago would have bothered me to no end. Pastor, I'm saying things and looking at things and going to places and thinking things again that had I done that a year ago it would have it would have devastated me but now there's no feeling now there's no guilt there's no shame 
There's no remorse. Listen, church. That's not good. But what is good is that God can cleanse your conscience. If something is wrong right now with your conscience, confess it. Make it right with the Lord. Don't go on living with a conscience that is defiled. So as we prepare for the invitation, let me ask you this tonight. What has God been convicting you of that you have not responded to? And I'm not going to lay out a long list of things. If there's something, you know what it is. What is God asking you to do that you have been refusing to do? What is it right now that you're involved in that your conscience is telling you you need to stop? Because listen to me tonight, if you keep doing that over and over and over and over and over again, your conscience will become seared. And there will not be any more conviction. There will not be any more pain inwardly. There will not be any more remorse. Listen, it's possible to have a conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward men. But that is, the on, but that is only if is it attached Listen to me, I'm done. That's only if it's attached to the highest standard, which is the Word of God. That's how Paul could say in two consecutive chapters, I had a clear conscience. I did not violate the Word of God. Every head bowed, every eye closed.